Um, oh, dog, shut up. No, sit down, you pain in the backside. Ah, you annoying creature. Bloody dog. Tell your dog, sit down, dog. Sit down. And shut up. And the lizard as well. You can stop looking at me too. I love animals. Okay, podcasting. Let's go. Let's okay. go. Okay. Right. <clears throat> Hello and welcome to episode thirty-three of the world-famous, much-lauded, highly acclaimed Tetrapodology podcast. I am the great cat burglar of San Diego de Compostela. <laughs> <laughs> Are you really? I have, I have no idea who that is. Um, uh, Speedy Gonzalez, maybe. <laughs> Uh, one of the lame, the lame Warner Brothers characters. Yeah. Um, okay, so in this episode, um, oh, where's the agenda? Um, well, I don't know. Should we just? We've got, we've got, we've got some follow-up to talk about. Yep. We've got some uh, news from the world of Darren and John to talk about. We've got some news from the world of news to talk about. We've got some cash for questions to talk about. Where should we start? Well, let's start. With, let's do it in order then, huh? Ah. How about that. Okay, so yeah. so let's start with the regular part of the show that we like to call FU. FU, Darren. <laughs> slash Cow and Keezy Corner. Slash Dumbass Darren. <laughs> uh, I'm really not in the mood for this. I don't know why. I'll see how, I can see how it goes. Two-minute rule. <laughs> Two-minute rule is in effect. Uh-huh. And look, I have my trusty glass of vodka. Uh-huh, yep. Drinking game. Now, do you remember the bit in... Star Wars Episode 4, The Empire Strikes Back, where Yoda says, Luke, save up your Imperial credits, you must. Buy the latest range of T-16, you can. <clears throat> no. And that's because Yoda, Yoda doesn't actually say to Luke, <laughs> save up your credits, Luke. Uh, by which I'm referring to the fact that in a previous episode, 31 or 32, <laughs> I misquoted Yoda. <laughs> I said... I said that Yoda says, mind what you have learned, save it you can. <laughs> Whereas he actually says, save you it can. <laughs> and it's just a totally different spell on it. <laughs> I thought, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, top of the show. Um, Cetotheas. Do you remember we were talking about, I don't know, something to do with whales and limb reduction and limb loss and such. And I said that there was a new paper which established that cetotheas, these early stem mysticetes, mysticetes, baleen whales, I said that there's new evidence showing that they have actually got external hind limbs, the same as, say, bacillosaurs do. Thank you, Cameron, for correcting me on that. I was, I was wrong. I, this is what happens from just reading the title and the abstract of the paper, not the paper itself. That's not what the paper says. It actually says that they've got hind limb bones, as in a femur and a tibia, but big deal. You know, a lot of whales have. doesn't mean they've got sticky out little stumpy limbs, hind limbs hanging out mm-hmm. the back. So I was incorrect there, I believe. Although I need to check. I haven't even read the paper. Spinogate. Spinogate. So Dachshund dinosaur, we've got to follow up on that. So a lot has happened since the last podcast, and... Um, the Spinosaurus story, which we discussed in, was it, I don't know, maybe the last episode, maybe 32 or 31, I can't remember. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we said that we were following what people like Scott Hartman 
and others had avoid, avoided mentioning Mark Witten there. Um, <laughs> oh, no, no, just did. Um, the, there was some claim there that the paper by Ibrahim et al says that Spinosaurus has got these really dinky little hind limbs and looked actually absolutely ridiculous. And if you checked the measurements in the paper for what they said about the length of the ilium and the hind limb, this seemed to be the case. It seemed that they'd got well. It seemed that they'd gotten it wrong that they'd made the hind limbs and pelvis too small. Mm. Now the authors of this paper, and these are Ibrahim and colleagues, are obviously monitoring what's been said on blogs about their paper, and in both cases, responding to Scott Hartman and responding to Mark Witten, they've written, Ibrahim and colleagues have written long responses saying, no, 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 you, you've misunderstood, this is what we actually meant. And they've shown that in actual fact their measurements and what they say about the proportions are not inaccurate, and Spinosaurus really does have really stupid tiny little hind limbs and really does have a small pelvis compared to its overall size so uh, they're sticking up for their interpretation and it seems from the data they've presented if you read these articles it does seem that they have um supported yeah their their contention spinosaurus really was strangely proportioned with really weird hind limbs um of course there's a kind of bigger problem which is that well basically then you didn't really you know with all due respect to the author's concern they obviously didn't explain it particularly well in the paper or the supplementary material if people were making these kinds of misinterpretations, because I checked it as well, and I th- I thought the same. I thought that they were saying that they that they'd got stuff wrong. So, um, so what did happen? I don't understand. Um, the shortest answer is to direct you to those articles. So go to Scott Hartman's SkeletalDrawing.com. Re- yeah, I've read the original one. Well, go well, and I check. I haven't looked at it for... Yeah. yeah. There's, a re- there's a revision one, and it said because Scott and Mark both estimated how long the hind limbs and how, and how big the pelvis should be by comparing... Because the authors provide a list of measurements of all the bones, right? Yeah. So when you see their reconstruction, because the measurements come from differently sized individuals in some... I can't, I'm not going to explain this at all well. <clears throat> oh, well, never mind. Let's move on. Well, I, I, it's one of the things I can explain, but I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that I'll explain it wrong. <laughs> I'll explain it wrong. Because if you follow their measurements, it's like, well, they say like that the femur is, say, four times the length of, of a dorsal vertebra. But if you check their proportions, that's not the case. It's like the, the femur is shown as, say, three times as long as a dorsal vertebra, that kind of thing. And so that's why people thought they got the proportions wrong. But they're saying, no, no, that's because you misunderstood what we meant by the length of the dorsal vertebra. You took the centrum length, whereas we meant, you know, the length of the centrum plus the anterior condyle as well. So therefore, you've misunderstood the proportions. So you've misunderstood the proportions of the whole animal. That's kind of the gist of it. I mean, this... Yes, I uh, predict, because I think I am actually up to speed now, I think that there's going to be more about this. Yeah. I yeah. think there's something fishy going on with those back legs. I still think there's something fishy about it. Well, yeah. <laughs> well it's, due to, it's due to be monographed. I mean, I, 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 have, I have doubts about these all being from the same specimen. And um, I don't know, yeah. did, I, did I say in the pre... Well, 
they say that it's supported by the fact that the, one of the specimens is is um, associated and demonstrates that you really do have a short hind limb going with like, you know, the, the tall tall dorsal spines, the tall neural spines, so you can get the proportions right. But so, right there you go, brief brief follow up. But it's, we're not done yet. I mean, this this thing is things have quietened down now because all the initial hype has died down and the initial you know the buzz around the first art blog articles and stuff. I think we're driving the excitement here. Um, Oh yeah, two minute roll. Look at that. Yeah, right. News from the world of Darren and John. News from the world of Darren and John. So, what do you want to say? Ah, uh, well, we could start with the Paleo Art article. Yeah. Go on. Okay. Then. Yeah. You start. Uh, I don't. It's your podcast, Darren. I, I'm, here it's to, not... I'm here. I'm here. It's like the you know the guy that laughs at your jokes, not you know, <laughs> not the content man. I'm meant to be the Darren show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on and on and on rambling Darren rambles on um, so John myself and our friend Mark Wynn <laughs> just just published a, uh, a lengthy article in Paleontological Electronica which is a an online open access technical journal devoted to paleontological often pa- paleontological stuff involving like you know computer science and things like that and um, um, we have written a commentary piece led by Mark Mark is the first author and it's basically about sort of where we're at in the world of paleo paleo art the depiction of prehistoric animals and the fact that things kind of aren't okay they sort of need to be nudged a little bit I mean this was kind of instigated by a case of obvious plagiarism that involved Mark Wynn's art he was without doubt basically ripped off by someone who was charging a museum for the use of of their work but um but the article talks about that it talks about how we've got to get away from a culture of copying because the the good paleo artists the ones that you know should get the work and the ones who are respected and produce good material and john is definitely one of them mark Witten's another one and there, and there are you know quite a few others um they're obviously experts in terms of doing what they do and, you know, go to all the trouble of doing proper kinds of research and getting the proportions of these animals right and reconstructing the soft tissues right and incorporating what we know about environments and paleobiology and so on and so forth. So those sorts of people should be doing this work, but there's a lot of people who illustrate things for books and uh, websites and such who um, are basically hacks. And this article is kind of like going for that angle as well isn't it it's like you you can't just like wing it with this stuff <laughs> if someone asks you to 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 semi quote to what's that term semi quote sub quote paraphrase to paraphrase a paleontologist um who i was talking to about this once he said if you were asked to draw a tiger he wouldn't just wing it well i think a tiger should look like this <laughs> and it probably jumped off cliffs in this fashion <laughs> it's like no you would actually go and like do lots of research look at pictures of tigers and their musculature and such and their environment uh, and there seem to be people that are, pro- that are producing paleo art that aren't working in this fashion so so we talk about plagiarism we talk about you know who's good and who's bad without naming names what else do we talk about money uh, yeah money um because obviously um <laughs> not a lot of money in it for paleo artists especially not the originators of the work and that's a lot of the problem isn't it so a lot of the movers and shakers 
um, have never made money. Um, you know, some of the most famous artists <laughs> in the world are just scratching, scratching out a living or not making a living at all, which is uh, yeah. kind of crazy. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, Greg Paul, Doug Henderson. You think these guys would be comfortably off by now, but <laughs> I really don't think they are. You know, this is—it's kind of crazy the situation yeah. where people who basically define the field can't make a living, and yet you've got <clears throat> hacks who I won't name, although perhaps we should, because I think this not naming people thing is a bit weird, um, who do make a living, who do make a lot of money, and I just don't understand. It's, it's, it's a bit crazy that museums continue to employ people like this rather than the originators of the work. I think, I think you've been away while I've been fishing for... Okay, I, I've been asked to... You, you know I sell some of my diagrams to museums for use in installation. Yeah. I've sold diagrams to books and stuff. I'm not a paleo artist, but I do these diagrams. And um, somebody has asked me if they can use that crocodilomorph montage I've done, if they can use it in merchandise that they'll be selling in a shop. Hmm. So it's like, well, in principle, yes, I'm happy with that, but I have no idea how much you're supposed to charge for that. Are you supposed to charge like a one-off fee or percentage or whatever? So I got into a discussion about this with you know lots of other people I know. I did copy you in on the debates on Facebook. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and this is one of those things where nobody really knows how much you're supposed to charge for anything in the world of creating content. Not certainly not you know graphic content, art. Um, it's it's kind of hard to hard to find an answer, and I think this is an interesting thing that needs to be discussed because you've just touched on it there. This should be more widely known. I've found that, I mean, I, I know a little bit about the world of art and what people expect to get paid and what they actually do get paid, and the fact that they actually often don't get paid at all. But I find that people in other worlds have got no concepts of like what artists of any kind actually get paid. So I remember within the context of paleo art, remember Greg Paul. Some of you will know Greg Paul, world's premier, one of the world's premier dinosaur artists. He was lamenting the state of paleo art. He was coming up with his own solution, which was people didn't want to follow what he said for various reasons. He has his own strange approach to this. But um, involving unionization and people not, not using his poses for animals and stuff like that. But <clears throat> he was saying, yeah, there's no money in this. And someone said, and I won't say who they are because that make them look silly, but they said, well... When you sell one of your paintings, why don't you charge like a million dollars for it? Literally, I think they said a million dollars. And they were talking about one of his big paintings, old, you know, his 1980s things that are like a meter across. And he was like, a million dollars? Do you realize I've actually, I think he said, I've never actually sold one of those ever. And, yeah. and, that, is, and that is a guy who's regarded as like world's leading. That may not be true. I'm sure he has sold stuff. I know he's sold stuff to it to museums and such, but and galleries and private collectors. But yeah, but I, I'm guessing that is really low. I'm guessing you know you say that and people sort of imagine that's tens of things, but I'm guessing it's in the single digits. He sold a painting to so and so. He sold a painting to so and so, and he sold a couple of paintings to museums or something like this. This is my guess, right? I don't know. Well, yeah, but I'm, it's more like in that realm rather than the. The dozens that people imagine when you think that, when you say something like, you know, so and so has sold to so and so. Yes. Yes, and we're also talking about the sales being on the order of at most, well, at most for a leading paleo artist, maybe a couple of thousand of dollars, but ordinarily hundreds of dollars. Yes. So even even there, you're not. Uh, we we know for a fact 
that a person universally regarded by everyone interested in paleo as as like one of the best. I'm talking about Henderson, Doug Henderson. We know that he... I don't want to say anything that seems too rude, but basically he lives in a shack and doesn't have any money. <laughs> so, and it's like, this is someone who you imagine is, you know, has a big mansion in Los Angeles or something and sipping martinis and... <laughs> That's how we all imagine Doug Henderson. <laughs> well, the thing is, I think we sort of agree that he should, you know. Uh, Doug Henderson should be living the high life now. Uh, and he, yeah, obviously not. And it, it, the I guess what we're saying is that the the money isn't following the talent or the skill or anything like that. It seems to be... I don't want to say randomly distributed because it's not quite random, but it's it's going to surprising people. Yeah, not the people you'd think. Yeah, but then the whole the whole issue of you know who gets paid, where money goes in the world in general is really unfair. Well, that's true. <laughs> um, but I would I, say that in the in the case of paleo, yeah. there's a reason you don't want that to be the case, and that is that you're not feeding back into the research that has to happen. So, yeah. you know. Um, the artist researchers would get a lot more done research-wise if they could, if they were getting paid properly. You know, there would be a, you'd be able to sink more time into each piece and spend more time doing background research. Whereas spending it on people who just basically don't research is Mm. not feeding back into that. So just copy walking with dinosaurs. Yeah, and you end up with just uh, an echo chamber of the same ideas and the same frequently wrong ideas being copied over and over again because there's nothing, it's not new stuff isn't being fed in properly. Yeah. So we've maybe gone off on a little bit of a tangent there, but um, uh, our article to those interested is called State of the Paleo Arts. So if you're interested in that article in the business of paleo art, check out our article it's titled commentary state of the paleo art spelt in the correct british fashion with lots of a's in it uh published at paleontologia electronica um i mean if you go through the contents of paleontologia electronica you'll be able to find it but um google state of the paleo art you should be able to find it i guess witten nation conway and um mark produced like a handy little uh like a what you call it like a badge kind of icon thing that we want people to use which sort of says this is why paleo art is important because well another another thing that we discuss in the article is the fact that paleo art is crucially important because you know whenever anybody does any sort of any outreach or any advertising or anything related to fossils they very rarely just use pictures of ugly fossils they generally use life reconstructions so it's like proper good paleo art is integral to paleontological communication so yeah indeed. could talk about that a lot more but I, th- I think that'll do don't you Yes. <clears throat> uh, oh, did you did you see the rodent T-shirt that I designed specifically for you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's if you go to the Red Bubble Tetsu shop, Red Bubble <laughs> slash People slash Tetsu, whatever it is, there's a there's a, <laughs> there's a T-shirt all about rodents. Which uh, did you know that? Now I thought it was like one in four mammals is a rodent, but then I did the maths, bit of a maths whiz, and I worked out that it's. <laughs> Forty-five <laughs> percent of all extant mammals are rodents. Forty-five percent. 
little oh. bastards. They need to be taken down a peg or two, don't they? Forty-five percent. Forty-five percent is approximately one in two point two. So one in every two ish um, mammals is a rodent, which is just incredible. Um, although you know, over the next coming decades, and we're going to get that number down, no doubt. Going to get rid of all those fancy South American rodents and stuff. Excellent. But it's just going to be you know house mice and rats. And there'll be, but there'll be lots more of them because they'll be able to move in lots of lots of new niches and stuff. So, maybe they'll speciate. Maybe they'll speciate. Maybe, mm, yeah. So, new rodent t-shirt. And what's been happening at Tetrapod Zoology, the blog currently hosted at Scientific American and uh, <clears throat> linked to this podcast. A bit slow today. Skinks. Yeah. October, October's been about lizards for no particular reason. Not to do with the fact that we have a pet lizard that we play with all the time. That's me and my wife, not me and John. We're not a couple. Um, skinks, skinks. Oh, my God. My skinks, skinks, skinks part one article has just moved into the s- number two place in most read posts on Scientific American blogs. So, wow. And the, the, the top article, of course, is a thing about Ebola. Um, yeah. What so, you need to do is write about Ebola in, in skinks and you'll have a winner. Well... There's there's ways there's ways of like you know making sure that you could get people to read your blog articles every time by blogging about vacuous celebrities and about news trends about ISIS and Ebola and you know that that kind of stuff or sporting events, but I think, well, a lot of people have for for that article for an article devoted entirely to skinks to get into number two of this this list. I mean, well, I already know how many people checked Hedgebots already, so I think. I don't want to say anything that sounds at all arrogant or whatever, but I think Tetchbods already shows that if you just do talk about hardcore nerdism in a way that people obviously, you know, want to want to read, they want to look at, then no, you don't need to do lowest common denominator crap or you don't have to tie it into sexy events in the global media. Mm. Does that make yeah. any kind of sense? Yeah, it does. And there's so many people doing that anyway that if you do it, the chances are you won't be successful because there are thousands of other people doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. So, so, so lots of lizards on on Tet Zoo. And, and there's also this article on pterosaurs recently. Now, neat news from the Tet Zoo sphere was an article I published at the end of September. But do you know why I want to mention it now? Um, tapirs. Tapirs. Right. Wow. Have you yeah. heard this news about tapirs? <laughs> no. Well. No tapir? Well, f- Dare I dream? A new species of tapir has been discovered. It's called Taparus cabamani. <laughs> discovered. <laughs> but, however, like, genuinely interesting. Have you looked at this article? I'm serious. No, ne- no okay. I haven't. You know that the books say that tapirs, they say it for the Malayan tapir, that's the black and white Asian one, and they also say it for the Brazilian or lowland tapir, that's the biggest and brownest of the South American <laughs> ones, they say that they can walk along the bottoms of rivers and lakes, lakes and things, like, you know, little hippos. The books say this. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I, I've read this many times, and I know they can swim and submerge. You know, I've seen them do this myself. But um, there's a really cool bit of film which um, has been obtained, and uh, some people are in a lake or river in, I guess... Somewhere, somewhere in the Amazon, and um, and a lowland tapir walks by underwater, like punting along like a little hippo along the bottom of the water. It's really cool. And I was like, wow, I had no idea. I'd, so, 
here's film that this definitely happens. As, as, there wasn't a doubt about it, but, you know, it's cool to get it on film. thought, I've never seen this on film before. Maybe this is a first. So that's why I blogged about it. Um, it turns out it's not the first time it's been filmed. It has actually been filmed a couple of times before. It's also been photographed, thanks to uh, Henry Pilstrom and other people for bringing that to my attention. Um, but, yeah, it's really, really cool. And I so can't find... Are they heavier than water? Well, I don't know. But animals can stay down. They can be exhibit. They can have a higher specific gravity than water by doing things like emptying their lungs, can't they? Yeah. So, or having a particularly heavy breakfast. I don't know. But um, it, does, <laughs> it, does kind of, <laughs> it does kind of suggest that they are quite dense. And maybe, maybe they are. I mean, um, I don't know if there's any actual qualitative data on the, the limb bone robustness of tapirs. Mm. But I, I don't, not for tape for hippos either. I mean, do people really know that hippos hippos are actually denser than water? I don't know they are, and they can't be all the time because hippos can swim at sea without sinking. They can do it. So I think I think the the take home here is that these animals are using you know they're behaviorally modifying their density by you know how much well breathing how, in and out breathing in and out how good they are at storing oxygen. In their uh, in their lungs. I mean, we tend to and dive probably of... also just swimming slightly downward. Probably doesn't take a lot of pressure to. I think put you so. Downward. Yeah. Yeah. If you're well, we, close we, to the edge. Yeah. We tend to dive with full lungs, but if you want to dive and scoot along the bottom, you tend to expel. Well, I know I do. I expel air, and also people that are expert free divers, they dive, they empty their lungs, don't they? They do all kinds of crazy stuff. There's even there's a champion free diver. I can't remember his name, but he even snorts water into his sinuses to, uh, yeah <laughs> that can't be well, good for people, you but... those people are crazy <laughs> <laughs> and that's how they that's how they stay down for like 21 minutes or something ridiculous that reminds me there's another correction i was supposed to make when we were talking episodes back about um sauropod breathing mechanisms and dead space and i gave a really sort of cursory and bodged explanation of what dead space is. I said that dead space refers to the amount of air in the trachea that you kind of have to expel before you can have fresh air inhaled, because obviously you've got to expel air from the lungs, mm. but um, I was saying you've got to expel air from the, the trachea as well, and obviously the longer your windpipe is, the more air you've got to exhale before you can inhale. That's not really accurate. What dead space refers to is the amount of air that you've got in your system but isn't serving any kind of purpose in terms of respiration. So obviously there's no respiratory surface in the trachea. There's just literally air is just sat in there doing nothing, right? That's, that's an what... even more problematic definition because Well that's what it means. With air sacs, they've got heaps and heaps and heaps of dead space. <laughs> in fact it's nearly all dead space. <laughs> uh <laughs> but uh, well let's let's get this with tracheal dead space then. Let's call it that. Yeah, that's yeah, because there is there's no respiratory surface in the air sac system, but that air in the resp- in the air sacs is shunted around, is is moved in and out of the lungs. But then you could say the same for air in the trachea, couldn't you? Yeah. So, good point. Touche, so Conway. I like your original thing, which is what we were trying to get at. Okay, it might not be, a, but who decides these technical definitions? Textbook dogma. Well, yeah, Orthodox. but how much is it written about? I don't know. It seems like it's not written to take that into account. Yeah, I think that's written for mammals. 
I don't think that's written for birds and dinosaurs. So you could be right. I say, nah. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, sorry. We're just going to use it the way we want to use it because it makes sense. Okay. Whereas well, that, there you go. the other yeah. way doesn't make sense. I want. I wanted to. I wanted to come back to this. So, um, by the way, by the way, we are live tweeting right now through the episode, and also uh, keeping on Facebook. Now, have you have you read the Little Box Big Universe review of the podcast? Yeah? Yes. What did you think? Um, interesting. <laughs> interesting. I you think. Do, well, yeah. I think it's good, and I I, I thank the anonymous author I, I'm anonymous I'm afraid I haven't gone to any trouble at all to find out what your name is but um, it doesn't matter does it I think it's good because whatever their opinion is and it's mostly positive mostly um, they it's, it's good to have feedback of this magnitude because generally you don't get useful feedback you get people saying we want more podcasts or Die, John, die, or whatever. You know, you don't, you don't really get any useful stuff. Pocket. We haven't had any real serious <laughs> negative stuff, have we? <laughs> no, because, <laughs> no, because those kinds of people hopefully don't listen. Mm. But, yeah, um, but you'd be surprised. People get listen to all sorts of things to make themselves angry, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be like a pastime for some people. Yeah, my <laughs> haters are all like genuinely insane. Sort of. Yeah fringe crazy people but uh, anyway yeah this is this is it's, it's useful feedback and yeah uh, so i i think we should give a bit of a summary like of it's generally pretty positive liking the tone of the podcast and all this um and also f- uh they found it quite interesting but the principal criticisms were that you drone on and on and on and go off topic told that's you. kind of the tetrapodcast <laughs> way <laughs> and um that it's too technical. We don't explain terms before launching into discussions about things. And on that topic, I think the thing is, I think that that's a legitimate concern, right? Mm-hmm. That we are pitched at a high sort of... Baseline. Baseline, yeah. And that there is room for a like a tetrapod zoology-like podcast, which does explain terms before we launch into it but i think that the strength of this podcast and tetrapod zoology the blog is that it doesn't waste a lot of space explaining this stuff because if we had to do that you wouldn't be we wouldn't be able to get to the detail right and 2.3 million listeners can't be wrong (laughs) (laughs) they're not doing too badly i think we've got about 2.1 million I think we've got about 4,000 listeners. To so that's pretty good for a podcast, I think. So, you know, the audience is there. Um, I, you know, in many ways, I think that, as I said, I think there is room for a podcast a bit like Tetrapod Zoology that explains the, the, uh, the stuff a bit more before launching into it. But I don't think that's for this podcast. Yes. What do you think? Well, you've said exactly what I was going to say. That um yeah, that I sort of sometimes feel uh, bad is the wrong word, but you know it's like oh jargon jargon jargon. But then yes, we know that this is pitched at. We know that most of the people that we interact with are familiar with these things anyway. So, but we want to keep everybody in mind. So where it's appropriate, you know, I'll try and remember. Sometimes I do try and remember anyway, but maybe I don't. Try and remember if a, a, a group is if a terminology is introduced, you just want a little brief 
footnote as to what that means. So let's try and keep that in mind. But, um, yeah, but also in some ways it's like learning a foreign language, which I haven't done, by the way, but that total immersion can work, right? You just listen yeah. to it for long enough, you're going to learn what a lot of these terms mean, especially the more general terms, you know, um, about um, phylogeny and stuff like this. You know, I think that you'll just learn it, but from context. Mm. Mm. Um, obscure groups of animals is another matter, but you generally do sort of give some notion about what they are. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so if people want to find, if they want to read that, I mean, it's in my Twitter feed. Uh, Little box, big universe. Um, that, was that a blog? It is a blog. Yeah. Well, maybe we should put it in the show notes. So, thank you to mm. your, uh, thank you for your review, Little Box, if that's your real name. <laughs> um, so. So, yes, um, in other news from the world of Darren and John, do you know what I've been working on now for months and months and months and months? (laughs) 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 (sighs) I'm still in Chondrichthians. Still in Chondrichthians. And... uh, I tried to finish. I tried to finish Rays, and then I just I couldn't. I just lost the will to live. Just couldn't do Rays, and that was after giving up on sharks. I'm bored with sharks. I want to do Rays now because, and I knew there was a lot of Rays, and my God, there's a lot of them. And then as I got bored with sharks, and it's like now I'll go back to the members of the Chimera lineage, the Eucondrocephalans, Chimeras, ratfish, rabbitfish, these weird deep sea chondrichthians with tooth plate like things. And yeah, this. Oh my God, and it's so. It's so. Oh, so depressing. There's no end in sight. So I've been, <laughs> I've just been doing fish for years and years and years now. So I've been. This is for my big vertebrate paleontology book. The the vertebrate fossil record is the working title. I just wanted to do tetrapods, but the um, the person who's provided the finances for this book, he's like, no, it's got to be all vertebrates. So, so I was like, but what about the fish? And he said, yeah, the fish. And I was like, no, no, not fish. Yeah. And I was quite happy that I got through the jawless things and then the actinopterygians, uh, the raffin, bony fishes, got through those, which took like about a year. So it's like for a book of this size, I went and I had a chat with my good friend, John Poland, who's an ecologist uh, and botanist. And he produced a book that's uh, going on for 600 pages. It's a key to the, le- to the plants of the UK. And um, it's a lot of work. And it's a similar in scope and size to my one. So, mm. John, how long did this book take you? Five years. <laughs> and so, yeah. oh, my God. I originally imagined to do this. <laughs> I'm not joking. I imagined finishing the whole book in six months. I and mean, see... There's something wrong with your brain, isn't there? Like, yeah, vertebrate <laughs> paleontology. Let's do everything. How long will that take? About six months. Six months. <laughs> <laughs> While I continue to do everything else I did. Yeah. 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 I could Good do man. dinosaurs in a week, mammals, that's another week. <laughs> do some drawings. Bish, bash, bosh. Yeah, not just writing it, illustrating it too. Yeah. Nice job. Yeah, so, so that's... Uh... <sighs> So but there you I'm, go, publishers. If you yeah. want a sap who will... Uh... <laughs> I do now know a lot about rays. <laughs> in fact, I know a lot about fish in general. So at one point, there's going to be... I, I don't know when exactly I'll do this, but um, I'll do a tetrapod zoology article that's devoted to fish. Because, and and it, won't be, it won't be everything about fish, but it'll be what I've written about fish because cause all these, like, these montages, these pictures, composites of like, different members of different groups I've done 
looked, I think they looked pretty good. Mm-hmm. It was good fun drawing all the rays and stuff. So, uh, and you learn a lot about, there's a lot of happening stuff happening in the world of rays, you know, deep diving manta rays and intelligence, the manta rays passing the mirror test. I've been telling everyone about that. It's really cool. Some of these rays are really smart. They can use tools, they engage in play behavior. And I'm talking about a fish in the yeah, Touchpots Audio stop Podcast. That, stop that. What's happened? It's actually against the rules. So. Yeah, let's stop that right drink, now. Drink, 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 drink. Um, the, 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 the Chickenosaurus event. <laughs> now, we've discussed this before. Jack Horner's, Jack Horner, world-famous paleontologist. Famous because he found the nesting colonies of hadrosaurs, I guess. And has done some other work. And um, Jack Horner reckons that we, we've t- spoken about this before, haven't we? Jack Horner reckons that, w- that we should take a chicken and genetically manipulate it such that it grows a long, in quotes, reptilian tail and that it has like visible clawed fingers and it's got teeth and everything. And he reckons it will look like a beautiful little velociraptor people, the velociraptor thing. And people will see it and say, ah, oh, evolution is so wonderful. Look at that beautiful animal. <laughs> Whereas my contention, and I'm sure yours as well, is that it'll be, it's likened to Mutant Ripley in Alien 3. It's like, <laughs> so um, I just think this is a terrible, terrible idea. I think it's an affront to the world of chickenry. <laughs> and, and I don't think that people are going to come away from this thinking that going to, yeah. So um, yeah. So that's kind of my my main thinking about this. this is a really bad idea, and and I can't help but mock it. I just can't help but, but think it's ridiculous. So I've taken to drawing little chicken sauruses <laughs> that look awful, like horrible mutant chicken monsters, and I tried to get as many, not just me, Ethan Kosak of Black Mud Puppy fame, who also produces the brilliant Tetsu comic, um, and uh, John, um, no, no, John, how many bloody Johns are there in the world? Too many Johns. I need to thin them out a little bit. I'm the only one. Uh, um, Gareth Monger, Gaffer Mondo. Um, Gareth was involved in this as well. Um, yeah, they started producing like really nice little, you know, webcomic style images of chicken sources, and we got this, like, we were trying to get it trending on Twitter, producing all these things. <laughs> If you on Twitter, hashtag Chickensaurus. I mean, if you're on Twitter, do it now. Do it now. Hashtag, because there's got to be some new ones. Chickensaurus. Mm. We got it. We got it covered on io9.com. Brian Sweetek blogged about it. Um, a couple of other people did as well. And such was the hype that it got incorporated into an episode of a TV show called Big Bang Theory. Which uh, I don't really like at all, but um, yeah, that's that <laughs> that's was all. It's all down to us. So, <laughs> yes, okay. that's pretty amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's gone crazy. <laughs> there's a there's a lot of uh, the chicken sources distilled nightmare fuel. Uh, was that the IO9 article, or maybe that was Brian's? Uh, Brian Brian Sweetek blogs at well, he's blogs for years at Laylapse, but he's got a new thing called is it Dinolog? Oh, um, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah. So there you go, Chicken Saurus. I thought that was quite funny. Yes. Um, okay, so that was Chicken Saurus. Oh, we've jumped around a little bit. Hopeless all... Monster Kangaroos. Oh, are we still in... Oh, sorry. We I thought we'd finished news from the world of Darren and John. So news from the world of news. We're in news from the world of news. <laughs> yeah, we've already done that. We've mixed them yeah. up. Yeah. So, real real quick, Hot, Hopless Monster Kangaroos is the new paper by Christine Janice and colleagues. 
published in PLOS One, so open access, they argue that the stenurine kangaroos, so this is this group of kangaroos best known for stenurus and procoptodon, you've, you've painted one, mm. uh, or maybe more than one. These oft famous for including giant kangaroos, as in three meters tall-ish, short-faced um, kangaroos that have got unusually mobile shoulders. They can, like, you know, wave their arms around like we can. And they're monodactyl. They've only got one giant toe. And, of course, whenever people have reconstructed these stenurian kangaroos, these, this group is extinct apart from a small, a small member of the group that's possibly extant, um, they are obviously being kangaroos. They're always reconstructed as saltating or hopping. But this paper, Janice and colleagues, they argue that, no, couldn't do that. Couldn't do that because um, they lack fundamental uh, lumbar and pelvic and hind limb and tail characters associated with the saltation form of locomotion present in living kangaroos. They argue they couldn't saltate because their backs are too stiff, their tails aren't muscular enough, something to do with their, the, the anatomy of their tibia, the shin bone, and therefore the, the, the musculature they had in the hind limb. And they argued instead that they... Um, did a kind of weird striding, striding gait. So they were fundamentally unlike extant kangaroos in terms of locomotion. So interesting paper. It's got a lot of information on the anatomy about stenurines in it, which makes it very useful. Um, and it's totally novel. There's a really weird reconstruction in it by Brian Regal. Um, Christine Janice seems to like the work of Brian Regal. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I have to say I'm not a fan of it. It looks they look kind of cartoony. cartoony. But um, I, I am sceptical of this study. And uh, and I and I would, it's very interesting. But I would like to see some like. I haven't read the whole of the paper. I've skimmed it. I need to, I need to check see exactly what they say. But I'm just kind of wary of these cases where people say, "Ah, oh, extinct taxon couldn't do behaviour X because it lacks character Y present in living animals," and then it turns out that yeah, but that character isn't integral to that form of locomotion. Or there's another way round it. So people have said things before about saltation and striding and such in extinct bipedal mammals because they've kind of like just looked at one extant analogue rather than all the extant analogues. So there's a, there's a fossil Eocene mammal, for example, called Leptictidium from the Mesel location in uh, Germany. And the authors originally said that this thing couldn't be a saltator like a kangaroo because because uh, it didn't have I think they said it didn't have like fusion between the proximal tarsals the some of the ankle bones and and the tibia they said so it couldn't hop so therefore it's a strider like a theropod dinosaur so that kind of became like textbook wisdom that it was a strider striding bipedal mammal and then it's like well hold on who says you need to have fusion in the you know between these sets of bones to be a saltator there's other ways around it. Like kangaroos don't have that fusion. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so there goes that argument. And and in this new paper, I mean Christine Janice, she sure doesn't know her osteology, you know, and functional morphology. But they're saying that like the tails of these senuring kangaroos are sort of too short and not muscular enough. And part of me thinks, well, yeah, but are you sure that's absolutely integral to this? Because the tails are still like heavy and muscular and I don't know. I'm just I'm just saying that there's reasons to be skeptical about it because we know that we know there are some kangaroos that do walk, you know, um, use an alternate alternating gait rather mm. than a 
rather than a saltating feet together gait. We know that some kangaroos can do that. Some uh, rat kangaroos can, some tree kangaroos can, kangaroos can. But um, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting paper. So I wanted to mention that. And, it, and the paper's called something like, were they really hopeless monsters? <laughs> Which is a clever, <laughs> clever little pun. Yes, I'm just looking at this picture here. Yeah, it's it's not very good. It's pretty dire, actually. <laughs> Has this person ever seen a kangaroo? I mean, what's going uh, on there? And also, why is the um, left tibia like three times as long as the right? Sorry, shin, I should say. Three yeah. times as long as the right. It's just... I don't want to be particularly mean about his artwork, but um, uh, no, this is this he's is... he's done he, he's done many illustrations for whole books on fossil mammals, and um and and I actually said in a in, in a review of one of these books I said the, the, they look like I don't know they look like useless cartoon like renderings, and I just just don't think yeah it's just they're just not good enough really. Yeah, there's um, basic so... internal inconsistency here, and yeah, it's just not good anyway. Yeah. Uh, now, the the UK has a new species of living amphibian, so Bufospinosus, which is, what, does that, does, everyone just calls it Bufospinosus, I don't know if it's got like a common name, let me just check, what does uh, our good buddy Google say? Oh, I've lost the world to type. Well, that's stupid. <laughs> if you Google it, it comes, it's included in the entry for common toad because it was until recently regarded as a subspecies of common toad Bufospinosus this like continental European thing has turned up on Jersey and of course biogeographically Jersey is part of France more than it's part of the sets of islands that we generally <laughs> the, the political terms used for the sets of our, the, the, the British archipelago is so confusing yes. the, British, the British Isles Great Britain uh, the, the other terms, yeah. UK, the United Kingdom, yeah. Then they're, they're non-overlapping terms. It's really there's like about seven of them. So um, the bit of the archipelago that uses that, that includes England, Ireland, Scotland, and Wales, Jersey isn't much to do with that. It's more to do with France. But yeah. politically, Jersey <clears throat> is um, part of the United. No, part of the British Isles. So when we have an animal on the British Isles, we say, ooh, we've got it. It's, part, it's a British animal now. So this new toad. And given that, you know, I know that Australians and Americans and stuff don't get this, but it's like, <laughs> given that we've only got like, what we got? Two toads and three frogs or something? It's like, we've got another one. Yes, we're into the, winter the, the next, we're into like six or seven species now. And they're going like, I have, I have that many in my, I fished that many out of my dunny the other day, or you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, Britain, not yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, keep doing that. That's good. <laughs> keep doing what? I don't understand. You confuse me. Um, the Australian accent, dunnies and stuff. That's oh, right. <laughs> wasn't it? Sorry, I was, I was thinking of Americans because obviously, but Americans, yeah. Uh, Americans don't have dunnies. <laughs> Ivan Moss Hennessy on the Twitters says, any news on possible Permian bear predation of new tapirs? How could this effect work on Ohio red panda conservation? There's, there's like seven Tetsu in-jokes packed into that one tweet. Thank you, Ivan. Oh, dear. I stayed up way too late last night. I think I'm a bit brain... More brain dead than normally. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this episode's going to need a lot of editing. Right. 
Okay, so that was hopless monster kangaroos, new amphibians. C for Qs, let's do some cash for questions. Let's move on to where the money is. Yep. Oh, God, oh. where is it? <laughs> um, see, it's, ca- it's catching now, I'm fine, but now I'm feeling all <laughs> tired and disorganised because you are. Um, where is it? Cash for questions, right. So, Tristan Rapp asks, what are your thoughts on the rewilding efforts Specifically, Pleistocene rewilding. Yeah, what I don't am know I th- what this is? Oh, oh, rewilding is the 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 push which involves um, paleoecologists working together with community ecologists and uh, conservationists to reconstruct extinct or reconstruct recent, basically to bring back communities of animals and plants that um, existed in a given area mm. and. Uh, now, there's been talk for years linked to the plan to uh, genetically reconstitute mammoths. People have been talking about somehow reconstructing the Beringian steppe ecosystem because the whole ecosystem, like literally from the ground up, is different from how it was during the time, you know, like however many thousand years ago let's say 10,000 years ago approximately, because you know, mammoths were still around until 4,000 years ago, but only on Wrangell Island, <clears throat> the whole ecosystem is a different shape. You know, the flora is different, the, the, the um, topography is different, in part due to climate change, in part due to the impact of domestic animals, but also in part due to the fact that mega herbivores like mammoths and woolly rhinos and such and native horses aren't there. So you're literally the whole shape of the you know the community's gone. So they're saying we can reconstruct this if we like bring in loads of like those hardy Mongolian horses, Taki, put them put loads of those all over northern Siberia, get them to you know sort out the plants. Then that will change how much moisture is kept in the ground, and that will change like you know the the insect community, which will be linked to the change in the plant community. Then bring in some lions. Let's put some lions up there because there were lots of lions in Siberia, you know, during the Pleistocene, the Asian uh, and, Af- and um, European cave lions, steppe lions, and oh, tigers up there as well, maybe, yeah. I don't know, the lions, tigers, bears. They're bears pretty much the there. same thing. We've and, discussed this before. <laughs> um, yeah, and then we can reconstruct. So that has, that has been discussed for decades, literally this idea that you can sort of um, sort of mini terraform the Siberian steppes. Then it's been, then in North America, oh no, sorry, so then it was Australia next. Now Tim Flannery's um, interesting book, The Future Eaters, talks about how Australia had all this awesome stuff going on until recently, you know, diprotodons and giant kangaroos and megalania, this giant monitor lizard, and all of that until, well, the, the views on the on the ages of the fauna is concerned are controversial. Um, we're talking about tens of thousands of years old um but he says that stuff was all around until basically you know people arrived in australia and killed these and killed these animals Mm. and therefore we've got a duty to reconstruct it so let's bring back we can't bring back megalania because it's extinct but let's bring komodo dragons to australia we need like an arch predator and uh, we also need some like mega herbivores so we haven't got any like rhino sized wombats so let's bring like rhinos to uh australia you know that kind of thinking it's like you know we should reconstruct the the community, the shape of the community, and then it's taken off in a big way in North America, where people have again seriously discussed taking lions, cheetahs, and elephants to the North American Great Plains and like having those animals <laughs> run around wild 
and um yeah and there and therefore the the community will fall into place you know because if you've got elephants walking around wild in an ecosystem they create the landscape don't they 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 are literally uh well they're called ecosystem engineers they change the shape of forests they create you know a wallowing pool that forms when it rains will become a pond which will become a lake which will become a marsh you know um, the turbation of the landscape, the spreading of seeds, and all these things will be changed when you have mega herbivores in the system. So um, this is it's a big it's a big idea, and of course it's always controversial, partly because you know people that live in central Iowa or whatever <laughs> don't really want lions and cheetahs and, and elephants introduced to farmland, um, and it's also controversial because. Uh, you know, part part of the push behind the rewilding concept is the idea that that this is how it's meant to be, and it would yeah. be like this if only you meddling kids hadn't come here and killed everything and eaten it. Yeah. Now, is that really the case? Well, the the causes of the Pleistocene extinctions are complicated and controversial and while i certainly i'm sure most most people that you talk to do think that obviously humans had a big hand in the extinction of these animals it's not like that was the only thing going on and um there's reasons for thinking that some of these animals might have been in trouble or became extinct because of you know climatic changes or whatever as well because there have been dra- dramatic climatic shifts recently haven't there over the last few tens of thousands of years so yeah there are big changes. Yeah, I I think as as with as with most of these kinds of cases, it's probably sort of like a a combination of things. It's like they would have been in trouble because of climate changes, but they probably would have got they probably would have gotten by. You know, some species would have been lost, but some aspects of the community would have survived. But and then, but there's okay, just, there's a there's a different there's a bigger underlying assumption here of. We want the world to be like it would be without humans, <laughs> which um, most people are just going to go. What? No. And what's your answer to that? It's like a base assumption that most people don't share, mm. and it is. It's a fallacy. It's the naturalistic fallacy. I think you need to do better than just saying, "Wouldn't it be neat?" or "I really like it," or even that we think it would be ecologically more stable, which is questionable. I, I just uh, the whole idea seems a bit dumb to me, and just resting on assumptions that biologists often share because you know they're fans of animals and natural ecosystems and stuff, but just isn't defended properly. I think I think part of one of the assumptions here as well is this this kind of thing that yeah it does match with what you've just said, and and I would I'm kind of of this mind anyway that humans bad animals good right yeah. so so people wiping out elephants today so that they can make trinkets out of ivory or the killing off causing these things to rhinos so they can sprinkle powdered horn on cocktails or whatever they do i think that's different from people tens of thousands of years ago killing animals with paleolithic weapons for whatever reason they're killing them i kind of think those aren't quite the same and like humans are a part of nature and the extinctions that humans caused in prehistoric times it's like yeah we've got a bit of guilt about it you know aren't we terrible and efficient and stuff but well 
the extinction of those animals was, uh, in a sense, a kind of natural thing. It's not like we should pretend that it didn't happen. Um, a, a, a major important predator moved into the ecosystem yeah. and and caused and caused havoc. Although, as I say, in conjunction with other things, climatic events and such going on as well. So, so I think so. There's kind of like different levels to this debate. There's like if there's an animal that was happily everywhere and was thriving in the kinds of habitats that are still present until recent history, like within recent decades, within recent centuries. An example would be the white-tailed eagle here in Europe. That was everywhere until, like, you know, say, the 1700s or 1800s, and then it was killed because people shot them all or poisoned them or, you know, chopped down the trees they nested in. I think that's kind of different from imperial mammoths in the in you know the middle of the united states and canada i think that's kind of different and i so i do think that rewilding on one scale so like in britain reintroducing beavers and wildcats and white-tailed eagles you know animals that were here historically and have been killed through you know greed and ineptitude i think that's kind of different from prehistoric people wiping out entire ecosystems thousands of years ago that's kind of my thinking on it but why? Why is that different? Well, because the in these cases where you're talking about reintroducing mammoths and lions to North America, you are literally talk, talking about the shape of the entire fauna. There is the shape of the entire community. Sorry, there isn't an in situ, safe, you know, giant Serengeti style park. There's no like Yellowstone type thing in North America. Where you can, no, there's there there aren't places where you can just put these animals and there isn't an overlap with where there are communities of people and roads and stuff whereas talking about reintroducing wolves and beavers and eagle owls and white-tailed eagles to places like in europe and other places where those kinds of animals have gone extinct is different because things haven't changed that much for them to fit back into where they should be in the ecosystem and in some cases you can even say they do need to be put back in the ecosystem for example you know britain has got no big native carnivals anymore we killed wolves in the 1600s we killed lynxes about uh 10th or 11th century and as a consequence deer which we haven't killed have gone nuts there's you know there's like 300 percent increase in deer every year or something stupid like that so my basic point there was that animals that have been made recently extinct and fit into communities that are functional and in place uh makes more sense than animals where you're literally talking about a, a terraforming experiment. Mm. And, and, so, and also I was saying that I think there's like the animals that I think sh- should be incorporated into re- rewilding projects, uh, like I said, in Britain, wolves and lynxes and stuff, we actually probably do need those animals for the health of the ecosystems in general. So did I include the deer bit before the phone went yeah, off? Yeah, you did. <laughs> What do you think? I mean, do you see where I'm coming from? I do, yeah. So it's more a um, reintroducing balance into existing communities rather than trying to recreate from scratch or virtually from scratch. Um, I think I see. I, I can, of... yeah, no, I, but I think yeah, I think in some ways you just need to ask what's practical and what you know yeah. what works, and I yeah. think that, but. A lot of the stuff, as I said before, seems to spring from this notion that animals good, humans bad. Let's get back to this state where humans didn't impact anything. And I think that's um, that's just silly. 
Um, although, had that said, I would like to see, you know, Pleistocene Park or something, you know, if they want to fence off a huge area and try something like this, I'd, you know, be interesting. I don't have any objection to it in that I, respect. I, I, I do see it all as a kind of interesting philosophical experiment in that, you know, in philosophy, you're supposed to go as far as you can with an idea, even though, you know, it's like, you know, completely ridiculous. Um, I think that people have discussed... Pleistocene rewilding, particularly in North America and also, as I said, to a degree in Australia and um, Eastern Asia as well. And it's basically been shown to be ridiculous. You literally would be talking about reintroducing elephants, having elephants walking around on the Great Plains of North America, that kind of thing. And that's that's kind of truly impractical. Difficult in view of the fact that there's already, you know, people with significant agricultural uh, interests in these areas that would do everything they could to oppose this, I think. And also, you're talking about projects. Now, we know there's no shortage of money in the world because whenever people want to spend money on something that's ridiculous, they generally do, you know, sports stadiums and satellites and everything. But is <laughs> Dem- this... <laughs> Dem them satellites. Who needs those? <laughs> Internet. Well, well, yeah, most satellites are for TV networks. It's like you know, we should fish them out of the sky, um, <laughs> shoot them down. <laughs> Terrorism here on the Anthropology Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, what was I saying? I don't know. Um, 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 yeah, there's money. There's money around. Oh, money, 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 money. So, 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 doing something like you know, like reintroducing cheetahs and and uh, lions and elephants to like North America. That's that's you're talking about like certainly millions of pounds and dollars, and um, would that do we really want to do that when we could be spending? If you're going to spend the money on something crazy with elephants, couldn't you spend the money somewhere else in some other way? Given that these animals are being hunted to extinction in the places where they live now, however, there is a, a spin-off, a tangent from that because I know you all love tangents. Um, I can't remember if we discussed this on the podcast before. It was in a discussion about, maybe it was on in Tetsu comments, but about rhino conservation. is in politically sensitive topic, but in the countries where these animals are native, like tropical African countries and such, um, animals like elephants and, and rhinos, they're doing their best, some of these countries, but others aren't doing a particularly good job. What about like taking all the rhinos out and putting all of them in North America or, or Australia? But then the, the comeback to that is, yeah, but since when is that going to stop? Than being hunted and stuff because it's not like it's there's there's slight overtones of racism in this which is why you have to be very careful in and I am not advocating uh, no no I don't I don't think that is particularly racist <laughs> I don't think it's racist at all in fact I think there there would be less poaching in a developed country just because the risk to possible benefit in terms of money is yeah. is not the same because. Um, a tremendously risky business, I should think, post- poaching uh, poaching rhinos. But the benefit in terms of the amount of money you make compared in your economy is is comparatively huge in a lot of um, poorer countries compared to richer countries. So, yeah, it's not it's just not worth it in a lot of um, richer countries. You know, it's crazy, but Plus, it is it is it is more rational and worth it in. Uh, Poorer country, and I've heard that one of the reasons that um, that you know ivory poaching is so big in a lot of Africa is because it's really easy for people to get like illegal AK-47s and stuff. Whereas in countries like the United States of America, you can't get guns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> sorry, sorry, USians. That was that was in for Jessica. I know she loves that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, so. yeah. But I mean, uh, it is tremendously tricky. I, I went been to Swaziland twice. I went to Swaziland a few years ago, and then went back the year before last. And the amount of extra stuff they've put in place to keep the rhinos safe is you mm-hmm. know, new fences everywhere and patrols and you're not allowed to walk in the park anymore and stuff like this you know they're they're putting effort in but yeah so it's clearly a pretty big problem that yeah jeez oh, there were some there were some cases of rhino poaching where multiple layers of corruption just now corruption's present everywhere wherever wherever people are in people are controlling other people but um there was there was cases in some of the countries in southern africa where it's like so there's there's the the guys at the bottom who actually go out and kill the animals but the 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 animals were killed because they were on land owned by wealthy farmers who are you know european immigrant type people and then they were selling them to people in the veterinary industry who had special links to like vietnamese politicians so I mean, like I say, there's corruption everywhere, but you'd like to think, you'd like to, and this this is, like I say, you know, when you say these things, that you can be accused of racism, but you would you get corruption of that kind of level possible in a country like the United States or one of the European countries or Australia? Um, I don't know that you'd get it that bad because I don't think things are as fast and loose and there aren't as many loopholes. Well, and also, again, I think it comes down to sort of the risk versus benefit. You know, the amount of money you stand to make is not enough to yeah. risk your job and your <laughs> and your freedom to do. And your life. Right? And your life, and your life. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So they're just, yeah, I think that it's just not as, I think that's one of the big reasons why okay. you wouldn't get such a thing happening in so, so we should take all the rhinos out of Africa and and put them in Australia, and uh, they'll, then they'll be safe. <laughs> you won't kill them. Because, <laughs> in case, dear listener, in case you don't know how bad things are, I don't know what the figures are now, but I know that by about was it like April, over two hundred rhinos had been killed in Africa. Like that, actually, that figure sounds too low. I'm. Uh, how many rhinos killed? 2014 uh, more than 500 and that's by July yeah it's just yeah I mean I mean, how many are left I think that's the important statistic because if there were 60,000 of them that might it's a bit alarming but it's not it's not it's it's less than that and but it's it's like a few thousand isn't it it's very very low yeah, and of course, some some populations, some uh, um, some like subspecies have have it's thought have been lost. Okay, it's looking like it's about twenty nine thousand, but that's of all species, and that's like six or seven species. Mm. So it's about five thousand black rhinos, twenty thousand white rhinos, twenty thousand twenty thousand white rhinos. Hmm, that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll keep poaching them. It's obviously, obviously fine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> joke. That was that was not at all funny. In fact, edit that bit out. What about a, a <laughs> rhino breeding program just for the horns? 
Is it really difficult to breed rhinos? Not that difficult. Then why doesn't someone do that? Yeah, because the... Now, this has been mentioned, like, flooding the market with horns. Mm. But the problem is that people don't want the horns from the commonest, most abundant rhinos. They want the horns from the really rare ones. How can so they you, tell? Because they're different shapes and consistencies. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I know, I know this has been, has been looked into. Um, I wanted to know why people didn't... There was this talk You'd a while think ago. there would be farms, although maybe you have to get licensed, but maybe they should be more liberal with that. I don't know. Yeah. There was, you know, there was this idea that you could like inject rhinos with some poison that forms specifically in the horn tissue, so that <laughs> anyone that uses the horn tissue dies. I, I wish they would do that. I so wish they <laughs> The rhino's fine. But then, but then also, you, you don't want people dehorning rhinos at all because, of course, what's the easiest way to kill a rhino? What's, what's the easiest way to dehorn a rhino? Kill it and chop kill its it, face yeah. off. Not... Not sedate it and be nice to it and then saw its horn off so it can regrow it, which of course it can. The horns can regrow really quickly. But um, no, just See, that's the, That just seems like the most crazy thing about this, mm. right? That you could just, in a rhino farm, you could regularly sedate your rhinos and cut their horns off and regrow them. Yeah. Ew. Oh, and also they dehorned wild rhinos to mm. stop people killing them. But horns are actually pretty useful for rhinos and uh, the um, adult females they dehorned, all of their babies were killed because oh. they can't, like, they can't, they don't know how to fight off a lion without a horn or something. Yeah. So, um, and also they use horns to, like, break branches and dig with and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's, it is useful. But, but there are cases in zoos where they cut them off and, uh, they, and the horn regrows in, well, you know, fingerna- fingernail speed, r- ridiculous mm. amount of time. You know, within like a couple of months, it's got a horn the same size. So um, that's the one they cut off. So we've we have gone <laughs> substantially off on a, a tangent here. So, <laughs> do you do you think we need to say anything else about rewilding, specifically Pleistocene rewilding? Um, no, I, I think that was that was pretty. Good. I think we've summarised what the idea is. We've kind of given some ideas as the pros and cons, and I also hope that people have gotten away from the idea that the concept, which I think you agree with me, my thinking is that small-scale local stuff that can fit into existing ecosystems is workable, but terraforming entire, changing the whole shape of Australia or North America by bringing in rhinos and elephants and stuff, maybe not so wise. So, you agree with me? Yeah. Good. (laughs) So, Tristan Rapp. Yes. Thank you for your question, Tristan. Good question. Okay, so Joseph Crawley asks... Crawley. Crawley, sorry, yes, Crawley. Joseph Crawley. Given the extreme disparity found in mammals, how is it that leglessness has not evolved within any mammal lineages? Is there something about mammalian anatomy or physiology that does not favour leglessness, or have mammals simply not had the relevant timescales to adapt to an environment that would have would favour limb reduction? What do you think? Uh, this is why this is why I mentioned weasels, wasn't it? Because weasels are the closest thing that we get to legless mammals, apart from, of course, cetaceans. Yeah, cetaceans, of course, having substantially well, having lost external hind limbs. And in some cases, got pretty small forelimbs. There are some small flippered ones. But 
Joseph is obviously, I'm guessing, is talking about um, terrestrial ones. Well, so tetrapods become limbless by evolving an elongate body shape where they can rely on axial locomotion, so using the whole body uh, in order to like move. You know, that's they move by sinu- sinuous waves of the body, or you know, digging through sediment or whatever. So, to become a limbless tetrapod, you have to be a serpentine tetrapod. And what we see in tetrapod groups that become limbless, apart from weirdos like whales and moa, of course, have lost their wings, and and some and other diving birds are diving birds with strongly reduced forelimbs. The extinct Hesperornithines of the Cretaceous. Um, isn't it that all the cases of limb loss involve serpentine animals? They become super long-bodied, their limbs become short, and then eventually the limbs become redundant and apparently lost. I think that's probably accurate as a generalisation. If that is accurate as a generalisation, then the question is why haven't mammals become serpentine in the first place? Now, I'll, I'll wager that there's some... Uh, genetic-y things that kind of prevent or make it difficult for them to like lose things like pectoral and pelvic girdles in some lineages. But I wonder if more important is the thermoregulatory or physiological argument. So we already know that because of uh, um, the surface area to volume ratio that long-bodied mammals have to like have a higher metabolism they have to eat more food they have to be more frenetic they have to have faster working organs in order to produce enough heat to compensate for heat loss so weasels are you know probably the most serpentine mammals i guess you know tubular bodies probably specialized for disappearing into rodent burrows and tunneling through leaf litter and snow and such their um resting metabolism is 50 to 100% higher than that of similar-sized non-long-bodied mammals. Fully twice as much, as, which I, that's pretty incredible. Their physiology runs twice as fast as their, their metabolism runs twice as fast as that of similar-sized mammals. So um, I, wonder if that's the, I wonder if that is the key constraint. You, yeah. can't, become, you can't become a serpentine endotherm. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, because I can't think of a single... Well, there, there, there's talk of certain snakes being somewhat endothermic, isn't there? But they're tropical, and there's. Uh, it's not it's, clear it's, to it's, me because of the whole freaking physiology thing. It's very we sh- Yeah, I, for those, like, we should say that, you know, you're not even supposed to use terms like endothermy and ectothermy anymore because there is n- there are no blacks and whites in the world of animal physiology it's all infinite shades of grey as is so often the case with these things and there are lots of endothermic reptiles as in they retain heat they can produce heat internally in organs or muscles and retain it and maintain a stable body temperature but (laughs) 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 but they don't do it at the same level as fully endothermic mammals of course not all mammals are endothermic and in fact there are ectothermic mammals um, so, 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 so the, the point is there are snakes and lizards that can generate heat internally and can stay, and can stay warm but 
they yeah they they either do it intermittently like they're heterothermic which means they can switch from this method to another method even allowing themselves to cool down at certain times um yeah or they don't have the same whole body uh retention of heat that like mammals do yeah um i think that's a good answer there's also um the motions involved uh you know, oh, the way also... mammals run yeah, and yeah, move yeah, is, is yeah. different to lizards and, and amphibians, right. which yes. might have um, evolved leg- leglessness. So this argument that the, the ancestral uh, mode of axial locomotion for vertebrates is side-to-side undulation, mm. whereas mammals went through like a relatively stiff-bodied phase where, you know, limbs are... Um, powering things and the body is not isn't body is not undulating and then later evolved vertical undulation so obviously you know everyone's familiar with running animals like you know cats and and stuff you know their the vertebral column undulates vertically particularly in the the lumbar region um given that that is the general thing that mammals have gone for it's hard to well, it's you, you can't. You kind of can imagine that it's harder to go from a vertical undulation thing um, to a snake-like thing terrestrially. You can in the water, obviously. Whales and dolphins have done that, but um, to become like a digger or a slitherer or something, it's not going to work, is it? No, uh, it's a trickier evolutionary evolutionary transition, I would think. So that might be partly to do with it. So that's sort of two reasons, both of which seem pretty good. Yeah. Um, is there anything else? Well, there's ooga booga booga genetics, but uh, yeah, because because there's some stuff like you know some animals can't lose. This is one of those. This links to what we were talking about a couple of episodes back. Pleo pleiotropism, I think it's called, mm. where you animals can't just lose random bits of the body because they're development is fundamentally linked to other organ systems and like there's some stuff to do with like loss of the clavicle being linked to you know the development of some other organ i'm pretty sure there's some things to do with where the brachial plexus this big bunch of blood vessels and nerves goes that link to the development of the 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 whole pectoral girdle so i'm totally speculating but I, i kind of remember have some vague idea about reading that how these things are constrained in some groups and constrained in mammals mammals have to have a pectoral girdle and a big they don't have a big clavicle because clavicles have been lost in uh, several mammal groups but they have to have like a a clavicle's collarbone by the way Mm. um maybe they have to have the uh pectoral girdle because then the whole setup for the the nerves that supply the you know the the vertebrae and the head neck, the the neck, the neck, um, the shoulder junction and stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another thought occurs to me that if you're slithering along on the ground, um, it's probably going to wear your fur off, isn't it? <laughs> so if you want to be warm-blooded and long... You have to be a pangolin. Mm, well, you'd need some... What would happen? I mean... what. Yeah, you'd have to switch to super keratinized yeah. external covering. Um, 
Now, I'm thinking of mole rats, of course, you know, which are like, you know, they're not completely naked, but they've got a substantially reduced amount of hair. Mm. Uh, and are, I think they're longer bodied than other mole rats. But, but even so, no indication that they're trending towards limb loss. No. Um, and they just don't dig in a way that means that they're going to end up evolving into Amphisbanians. So, and they're ectothermic as well. They mm. don't rely on internally produced heat. Mm. Well, yeah, so maybe, so maybe yoga th- booga booga genetics, maybe metabolism, maybe the way they move. Yeah. yeah. So, so in answer to, to Joseph's question, I mean, Joseph raised these issues in his, in his question. Is there something about mammalian anatomy or physiology that doesn't favor leglessness? Well, basically, I think we, we think that, yes, that is the answer, that, that an ancestrally vertical mode of undulation and an endothermic physiology does not favor leglessness in these animals. And the other groups, the other tetrapod groups that have evolved there, have evolved legglessness, have been able to become serpentine in shape due to ancestrally having a side-to-side um, form of locomotion or aren't, endo- or aren't endothermic and don't have to worry too much about... Yeah, or both, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Answered. That's how cash for questions done. Booyah. Yeah. <laughs> Back of the nets. <laughs> um... Right, what are we going to talk about now? I don't know, what do you want to talk about? Well, you know, we could, <laughs> we could close up and then do Uncle Darren's anecdotes. <laughs> Uncle Darren's anecdotes. Do you want to do that after the show or do you want to do it at the last bit of the show? I think we should do it la- last. I don't want it to be like a part of normal conversation because otherwise I'll need to stop and keep going off at a tangent. Okay, so let's wrap up then. Alright, so Godzilla's still not out on DVD. <laughs> DVD. And John's- John's been trying to convince me to use some newfangled internets to buy it, but uh, no, I'm not doing that. I want, I like internets. my movies. What's that? I like my movies in hard, cold plastic form. And have you seen the um, how it should have? No, not how it should have ended. No, the um, you know, there's movie sins. There's videos that they they make that are like all the things wrong with the movie. There's a really good one. The Thunder God's God's Earth. Well, it's not really good. It's a bit, a bit good. It's a bit good. <laughs> well, okay. the, bit of the, the bit of the end is really nice. The way, yeah, the way it splices together bits of Godzilla with, uh, you know, with quotes from other movies, like a uh, bit where Brian Cranston is. <laughs> they put quotes from Breaking Bad into Brian Cranston's bits from Godzilla, and and there's also like a, you can handle the truth. Um, you have to see it. No, I'm talking about. Yeah. Okay. Now, John and I were talking about the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> what a good film that is but we decided it wasn't really in keeping with the, the Tessie podcast remits <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it does have wolf in the title but he wasn't a real wolf he was he was even referred to as wolfie once or twice in the in the movie by characters because you know it's a true story <laughs> yeah. um leonardo dicaprio as a uh, wolfie <laughs> his, what was his name his name was a bit strange tristan pollock or something well, that might be a real person, I don't know. But no, I don't was, remember. I yeah. don't remember. Okay. <laughs> um, can't think of anything else we need to... Uh, how long have we been talking for? Oh, too long. It's too long. All right. So, it's a very nice short podcast for you there, listeners. Mm. Mm. Right. And now we close to end music and then bedtime story. So we're story. not going to do any of the normal closing stuff? We are. Just I'm just telling people that... So. 
But I thought we'd do the closing stuff and then the Uncle Darren's Uncle Darren's answers. I'm just, just making sure that people know. Because, by the way, when you run these podcasts on the podcast on the website, they still don't. They still stop all the time, no matter what you do. There's something wrong with Squarespace. Yeah. So, sorry to people if you had that problem, because I have it all the time. Some of them will stop like five or six times. And you can't, you, you've got to, you know, refresh the page each time. So. It's annoying. But it's annoying. That's why you should use a podcast catcher rather than looking from a website like an animal. <laughs> I am an animal. <laughs> <laughs> you sure are, Darren. <laughs> DVDs. Right. Yeah. Listening to podcasts uh, on a website. <laughs> Still reading Anthony J. Martin's Dinosaurs Without Bones. I've gotten to the bit about bite marks and stuff. Uh, any other new books? That I should mention. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey. Dinosaurs and other reptiles from the Mesozoic of Mexico, edited by Hector Rivera Silva, Kenneth Carpenter, and Eberhard Frey. Uh, terrible, terrible cover art. Apologies to whoever did it. Look, this duckbill is fuzzy. The Tyrannosaurus is fuzzy. I don't got no problem with that. But just, I mean, this is, I'm kind of, yeah, my, my this is very good for our to, listeners. Um, yeah, it's, show I'm me not, the duck bill. Don't care about the tyrannosaur. I just that's pretty weird. I think for cover art, eesh, I'm not really kind of happy with this as cover art. Then there's a section. This is one of those Indiana University Press. Um, <laughs> look at this art. <laughs> I won't say who did it, but you see that? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like a, something out of a comic book panel. Um, there's, there's a section of colour plates in there, which... Uh, but what's, what makes this book good... I, I might cover this on Tetsu. So this is a Tetsu sneak peek for those of you who read the blog called Tetsu Wadsorgy, currently hosted the Scientific American. Is, um, there's a chapter in here by Dino Frey and uh, Stinner's back. Who is that? So I don't know who that person is. Wolfgang, Stinner's back. Plesiosaurs, Reptiles Between Grace and Awe. That's an interesting title for a chapter. But, okay, there's a group of Cretaceous plesiosaurs called polycotylids, conventionally regarded as pliosaur-type plesiosaurs. And um, now, of course, there's loads of questions about plesiosaurs that we want to have answered with, as regards their life appearance. Uh, and this fossil from Mexico um, has a soft tissue outline around it. Mm-hmm. And by and large, the soft tissue outline conforms what you'd expect. So it's been wondered once or twice whether plesiosaurs had soft tissue extensions that made their paddles broader or, you know, a different shape than they are in the fossils. Because, you know, the fossils, um, but the soft tissue preserved seems to conform quite closely to the shape of the paddle. But got a fat tail. So for the benefit of you and no one else, can you see... All that dark material around the base of the tail. Yeah. So, so basically, this is like like a skink, like this. This I've been writing about on Tetsu. The body and the tail sort of form a continuous. Yeah, um, it's just all. Hey, that's pretty cool. That's yeah. just like a great big sort of torpedo shape or something. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, I'm probably going to blog about this about the life appearance of lesions because this is new data. I'm not aware of this ever being discussed before. And normally, when people show uh, the plesiosaur body shape, they show the tail as being you know, like a third to a quarter as wide as the pelvis, the back part of the body, certainly, whereas this doesn't show that. This has got a fat ass. So, um, 
Oh yeah, yeah I which... think the way to describe that is it's continuous with the body shape. There's not like a what's the word a wasting in the tail. Mm. There's a you know it just continues in a great big sort of yes boat shape. That's right. So very much like that. Like you look at those those fat-tailed skinks, like fat. fat I shouldn't say fat-tailed because that makes you think that the tail is fat and the rest of the animal. But I mean, it's kind of, yeah, yeah. All one. It continuous. doesn't get wider again after the hips. It just continues on. In that's right. Big boat-like yeah. fashion. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So that's 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 pretty cool. I was quite excited about that. Anyway, so that was that was a tangent. I don't think there's any other new books to talk about. Okay. So um um so. If you ever want to listen to any of the Tetrapodsology podcasts, <laughs> go to <laughs> tezu.com forward slash podcast where you can find this podcast and many others like it. Uh, <laughs> this podcast... Well, to be precise, none others like it. <laughs> it's unique. Thank you to all our listeners. I'm sure there's loads of things we're supposed to have mentioned that we've completely forgotten about. Thank you to everyone who supports us financially. How's it going with all the money we get? Um. Yeah, we could have we could have more recurring donators. It wouldn't hurt. So thank thanks you for to those recurring. people that do. That's tremendously uh, helpful. But yeah, yeah. and you know. for that you're covering our hosting costs. We are not snorting it away in nightclubs. This is <laughs> well. Speak for yourself. <laughs> Don't call me John Wolfie Conway. <laughs> The Tetsu podcast is uh, part of the Tetsu media empire. Tetsuology is a blog currently hosted in Scientific American. I may or may not have mentioned that. And uh, there's also a couple of like spin-off web comics. Some of our friends do. Alberta Claw and John Tomel produce the Tetsu Time thing comic web comic, which is at time.tetsu.com. Our good friend Ethan Kosak, who runs the Black Mud Puppy web comic, also produces a Tetsu comic. No, which is tetsu.com what comic.tetsu.com comic.tetsu.com i tweet at told you i did reckless is he now matters are worse that boy's our last hope <laughs> no there is another at tetsu and there's Tetrapod's Aldi Facebook page, which is really important that you like this. Um, if you're interested in any of the stuff that John and I talk about and the sort of stuff we might write about, uh, excuse me, there's a couple of books we've done. Um, All Yesterday's Unique and Speculative Views of Dinosaurs and Other Prehistoric Animals, currently available from all good digital retailers and the bad ones as well. It's a book about the science and speculation of paleontology, paleoart, and... Recently, brand new, top of the press, the Cryptozoological Volume 1, the Biology, Evolution, and Mythology of Hidden Animals, and Volume 2, soon to appear. <laughs> <laughs> where, where do people go online if they want to buy those books, John? Uh, Amazon. All oh, right. Um, but also, no, probably best to go to a regularbooks.co for the links the to the various places. Yeah, if you're going to buy the paperback of either of them, it's best to buy them go to a regularbooks.co and buy them there because the Amazon paperbacks make us very little money. Yep. So 70p is how much we make on those, which we split wow. between three people. So, yeah. I am, of course, also still working on a giant textbook about vertebrate history. To when that finished, I don't know. Anyway, what about you? Uh, I'm at johnconway.co where you can find paintings of battleships. Oh, yeah, I like dinosaurs. that. Dinosaurs. 
things like this. Uh, you'll find links to my Twitters and my Facebooks on that. Um, yeah, and my blog, which I update irregularly. Well, it's not as bad as some blogs, is it? I managed to get some few things up every month. Yeah. That's all right. Um, yeah. I think that's it. Yeah, donate to okay. the podcast. We like that. We did that. Get your fat cash for questions in. Oh, and also, if you have uh, asked a cash for question, given us the cash, and we haven't answered it, it's because it's lost. So remind us, if that's happened. And how should people actually send in a cash for question? Yeah, that's a good question. You should you should um, give me some cash for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, click on donate for the po- donate to the podcast at tetsu.com and fill in in the PayPal notes your question because if you email separately, I might not manage to match them up correctly, and that's just messier. So yeah, donate to the podcast, put in the PayPal notes. Yes. Oh, and also keep them relatively short. Yeah, no genetics. And no genetics. We don't know the answers to that. Well, you know, if you want to give us a lot of money for... Oh! You know, Darren, <laughs> there's a huge cash for question which I forgot to put in. Oh, you So the person that did that will know who they are. Huge, huge question. Um, we'll get to that next time. Alrighty. <laughs> so, tune in next time for the next thrilling installments. Episode 34, what will happen next? <gasps> oh my god, it'll be older than I am. What? Well, I'm 33. It'll be 34 next time. I didn't know you were that young. The pol- the podcaster's got... Old. Old, young. <laughs> <laughs> Something. Okay, let's finish this thing, huh? Bye. 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 Uncle Darren's Anecdotes. It was while exploring the fine sandy sediment on the floor of a Spanish cave in the Armorian region that I was fortunate enough to discover the partial pelvis, possibly centuries or even millennia in age, of a hitherto unidentified lacerted lizard, immediately bringing to mind some of the large, recently extinct lacerteds that had inhabited the Iberian region during Pleistocene and Holocene times. Wishing to return to camp before nightfall and aiming to rendezvous with my colleagues before dusk began to fall, I safely stowed the bone in the side pocket of my rucksack, but promptly neglected to remember it. After all, I had more important things to worry about. What with the events of that Almerian excursion, the latent radioactivity, perilous cliff edges, the local Satanists, the giant trapdoor spiders and scorpions, and the marauding gangs of dangerous rabbits. Nevertheless, all went to plan and the trip ended uneventfully. While walking the streets of the west end of London some several months later, I found myself enjoying a bag of Cadbury's mini-eggs purchased earlier from a convenience store and safely stowed in the side pocket of my rucksack. As I strolled along on that fateful afternoon, singing a happy tune to myself and popping one mini-egg after another into my mouth, the bag began to feel emptier and emptier. It had split, you see, and exposed Cadbury's mini-eggs were rolling around in the rucksack. I thought nothing of it until the final mini-egg, placed without concern into my mouth, felt angular, sandy, suspiciously like a subfossil lizard's pelvis. It did not feel good in my mouth.